There are also dozens of less radical Islamist armed groups, from Hamas to the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood to Al Islah in Yemen and others. The bottom line armed Islamism has grown considerably in the past decades. And related to this is the question of its resilience. Indeed, the question of the resilience, the Taliban are back in power, Islamist rebels are still strong in Syria after 10 years of a brutal civil war. ISIS and Al-Qaeda are resurgent in Africa. You may have heard of their growing role in insurgencies from Burkina Faso and the Congo to Mozambique. This resilience is happening precisely as governments have spent massive amounts of resources trying to defeat them. So why? Why do armed Islamists seem especially resilient? Well, there are, of course, many possible answers, but a prominent argument in scholarship is that these groups are resilient because their fighters are religious zealots, people, fighters, prepared to die for the sake of God, willing to be martyred. So this perspective essentially makes the assumption that religion or ideology is the central motivation of these groups and of their members. Now, of course, this explanation can have some analytical traction in some cases. Think of the case of foreign fighters, suicide missions. But overall, it is a quite restricted perspective. And it is a perspective which overlooks a key fact. Often, these Islamist armed groups recruit non-Islamists not primarily driven by ideology. Take the case of Hayat Tahir al-Sham, a Syrian rebel group you may be familiar with under its old name, the Nusra Front, and which nowadays controls most of northwestern Syria. Of course, some of the group's members, and especially its leaders, do have a long history of Islamist militancy and very strong Salafi jihadi credentials. But what is striking is the group's willingness and ability to recruit fighters in local communities not primarily driven by Islamist ideology. That is, specific tribes, marginalized neighborhoods of Idlib, sometimes entire villages. On the right of the slide, you can see a picture taken just a month ago of the leader of Hayat Tahir Sham. Abu Mohammed al-Jolani, meeting up with informal community leaders in the province of Idlib, where the group is strong, and trying to enlist their support. As you can see from the picture, these are not Salafi jihadi community leaders, but as their attire suggests, tribal elders. Now, the point that I want to make in this talk is not to argue that ideology doesn't matter. It does matter to some extent. But it's to argue that the excessive focus on religion and ideology has led us sometimes to overlook some of the local dynamics, which also end up shaping these groups. That is what I mean with the title of my talk, All Jihad is Local. But let us delve a little bit more deeply now into how these dynamics all played out in the case of one Islamist armed group in particular the Tawhid movement. What you can see on this slide, on this picture, is a military parade by uh, the group in the city of Tripoli. Tawhid was an Islamist armed group 
which operated out of this city mainly, the city of Tripoli during the Lebanese Civil War of the 1980s. Tripoli being the second largest city of Lebanon, and as you can see from the map, a place very close to the Syrian-Lebanese border. And so effectively a place under the Syrian army's occupation during the conflict of the 80s. And the one aspect which really struck me when I did research on Tawhid is how this group of two to 3,000 fighters achieved major military successes. Its fighters evicted the Syrian army out of Tripoli and they cracked down on local strong leftist militias in Tripoli. Sure, they ended up being defeated by the Syrian army three years later, but even that was after a long and bloody battle. So what made the group so strong? Why were its fighters so resilient? Well, here, Islamist ideology was a factor to some extent. Tawhid recruited the small constituency of longtime militant Islamists in Tripoli. Activists who indeed were ready to mobilize and even to die for their ideological beliefs. These militants were partially inspired by the leader of Tawhid, the revolutionary Tripoli Said Shaban, whom you can see carrying a rocket launcher in the picture on the right. And they were also inspired by how Tawhid gained control of Tripoli and implemented what it called an Islamic Emirate. This is a declassified cable uh, by the CIA about Tawhid, and whoever wrote it was clearly worried about the group. Under Shaban's leadership, the Islamic Unification Movement, which is essentially Tawhid in English, under Shaban's leadership, Tawhid has transformed Tripoli from one of Lebanon's most tolerant and heterogeneous urban centers into Lebanon's most autonomous Islamic city. Sharia is applied in the city's judicial system, drugs and alcohol have been eliminated, Western dress for women is criticized, and Tawhid members enforce the fast during Ramadan. And so Tawhid attracted the constituents of Islamists in Tripoli, no doubt about that. But what I found really interesting, and I have to say intriguing during my research, was that Tawhid did not stop there. It also recruited many non-Islamists. So again, fighters in local communities and neighborhoods who were not particularly pious or religiously observant and never really developed a strong commitment to Islamist ideology. I was able to produce estimate where, because Tawhid was organized in distinct factions. And so it wasn't very hard with the help of many interviewees and former members of the group and observers to reconstruct estimates of how numerically strong or weak each of the faction was. And so there was a faction of approximately 600 Tawhid uh, fighters who came from one neighborhood only, Babet Bene. These fighters, were bands of youth locked in a rivalry with another neighborhood and many actually drunk alcohol. Another faction was made of another 600 fighters who for their part hailed from the districts of the old city and of Mina. Some of them took drugs and were involved in petty crime and most had a history of engaging in acts of urban unrest. 
So why would Tawheed be interested in recruiting so heavily in these three local communities with no history of activism? This is a map of Tripoli to help you situate the neighborhoods I'm talking about. On the left is Mina, which as its name suggests is the port district of Tripoli. Babet Bene is the northern enclave of the city. And the old city is Tripoli's historical heart, a large neighborhood. So why was Tawhid interested in recruiting so heavily in these three neighborhoods with no Islamist activism? Well, the important thing to remember here is that armed Islamists, like all rebel groups, must be said, tend to differ from clandestine terrorist organizations in that they're often interested in conquering territory, governing it, and holding it. Tawhid was no different. It wanted to rule Tripoli and create an Islamic emirate there. But in order to do this, it had to eliminate its opponents and to control the city. This, of course, required manpower. It required fighters. And the problem was that in Tripoli, the pool of militant Islamists is actually quite small. Sure, this is a city made up of 85% of Sunni Muslims, and many of them are pious, sometimes even conservative, but that's not the same as being Islamist, let alone militant Islamists. And so Tawhid, in order to have enough fighters, it would have to mobilize local communities with sometimes no history of Islamist activism, and that included the three neighborhoods I just mentioned. It actually set its eyes on these three neighborhoods, especially, first of all, because they were large. So they offered a pool of potential recruits. But beyond the need for manpower, there were also three more very specific reasons why Tawhid wanted to control these neighborhoods. One factor was politics. Remember, Tawhid had ejected the Syrian army out of Tripoli, and so it had a target on its back. It knew that the Syrian regime would do anything to crush it. So it needed anti-Syrian regime recruits, whatever their ideological affiliations, if they had any. It's in this respect which mobilizing and Babet Bene made sense. It had been the beating heart of the anti-Assad mobilization of the 70s in Tripoli. So politically, by mobilizing there, like you can see in the picture on the right, Tawhid was sending a strong signal to the Syrian regime, a signal and a message that any attempt to launch a crackdown on the armed group would result in a long and bloody battle. Another factor which made Tawhid want to mobilize this time in the old city of Tripoli was the strategic factor. The group needed a high point, a strategic location from which to oversee Tripoli and from which to defend itself in the case of a Syrian attack. In this respect, the old city was extremely useful. This is, as you can see from the picture on the right, a neighborhood made up of extremely narrow alleyways, essentially a maze of alleyways that are very, very hard to navigate, except for locals. I myself got lost there many times and for hours sometimes. These are places, neighborhoods, and streets that are easy to defend and difficult to attack. 
It's also a neighborhood which is very old, dates back from Mamluk times. And so it is surrounded by gates and military towers. And last but not least, the old city is home to the castle of Tripoli, which you can see on the right, a high rise medieval fortress where long range cannons can be positioned. In a nutshell then, mobilizing in the old city gave Tawhid access to a strategic area from where it was able to dominate Tripoli militarily. A final factor which played a key role in Tawhid's interest, well, this time for the neighborhood of Mina was economic. The group, after it gained control of Tripoli, needed resources in order to fight its opponents and to govern the city. That's where its interest for the port area comes in. Mina is the economic heart of Tripoli. It's where trade actually happens. It's where international ships come and go with goods bound for Damascus, Aleppo, and even back then for Beirut, as the port of, of the capital had just been destroyed. So Mina's economic potential was huge. Controlling the neighborhood, gaining a foothold in the industrial port allowed Tawhid to impose taxes on international shipping and to make literally millions of dollars. This in turn, allowed the armed group to buy weapons, provide small services to the local population, of course, engage in patronage. In other words, it allowed Tawhid to consolidate its rule over Tripoli. So to sum up until now, four main reasons guided Tawhid's interest in co-opting local communities, not primarily driven by its Islamist ideology. Politics, military, the economy, and a need for manpower, a need for fighters. But what about these local communities then? Those who ended up joining Tawhid were often non-Islamists, as I mentioned before. So why would they join an Islamist armed group? Well, to attract them, Tawhid used two main strategies. The first strategy it used was enlisting support from neighborhood strongmen. Indeed, what characterizes really these three neighborhoods is their traditional social fabric. These are historical popular neighborhoods where the presence of the state is very weak and where traditionally strongmen emerge to provide services and small services to local residents. This figure is called the Abadai in Arabic. And it is someone, this strongman, who ends up being seen as the informal leader of the neighborhood, someone who can often count on a huge local popularity and on hundreds of very loyal followers. The man you can see on the right part of the slide is one of them, Khalil Akkawi, the extremely popular strongman of the neighborhood of Babet Bene in the 1970s and 80s. He really was what we could call a champion of mobilization. Whenever he joined a protest or a movement, he would trigger the block recruitment of hundreds of his own followers. And in fact, when he was murdered in 1986, 50,000 residents of the neighborhood turned up to his funeral. This really shows the sheer extent of national potential. 
So what Tawhid did then was to recruit Khalil Akkawi. On the right of the slide, you can see the leader of Tawhid, Said Shaban, posing in the background in his clerical outfit with his new popular recruit, Khalil Akkawi, himself wearing a leather jacket, of course, the proper attire of any strongman around the world. For his part, drove Akkawi to the Islamist group was the promise that he would become one of its leaders and that he would benefit from Tawhid's protection in the local rivalry that he was involved in. Recruiting Akkawi was a huge victory for Tawhid. The group suddenly became very strong in Babet Bene, where it could now mobilize freely and start recruiting hundreds of Akkawi's followers who went on to fight for Tawhid in key battles. The interesting thing, though, is that according to dozens of interviews I conducted in Babet Ebeni with followers of Akari, very few of these recruits became true Islamists. They grew beards and they started looking like other Tawhid members, but they really remained neighborhood Islamists, fighters driven not by religion or ideology, but rather by loyalty for their Abadai and by local turf wars. The second strategy which Tawhid used in order to co-opt and recruit local communities in these three neighborhoods was that it acted as a vehicle for social revolt. These three neighborhoods indeed are literally Tripoli's most deprived ones, with between 70 and 90% of the locals living in poverty or extreme poverty. And linked to this, these are areas where social anger had long been simmering. Babetebene, the old city, and Mina all had long histories of violent social revolt. Histories and traditions of outbursts of anger aimed at the Tripolitan elite. This is actually where anarchist militias and criminal gangs had previously recruited, including most famously the Gang of the Outlaws, which you can see a picture of on the right. It was years before the growth of Tawhid, had recruited precisely in these neighborhoods that recruited the subaltern residents of these three neighborhoods. And for an entire year, they had together been violently targeting and blackmailing and extorting the Tripolitan elite. In other words, <coughs> they had been overturning Tripoli's social order. And so this is something that Tawhid also did. It did play into these histories of urban dissent and these powerful local socioeconomic grievances. It also provided a conduit for their expression. So on the one hand, its discourse became socially very loaded, but most importantly, and on the other hand, its actions actually followed through. The group began to target Tripolitan politicians and businessmen, regardless of how pious they actually were, and this attracted hundreds of local subalterns in these three deprived neighborhoods. But here again, the interesting thing is that very few of these subaltern members of Tawhid became true Islamists. They fought for the group whenever they were asked to, for sure. But the rest of the time, they were dragging Tawhid into what we may call a social jihad, or acts of urban violence driven by economic grievances more so than by ideology. And inevitably, 
this ended up alienating the well-connected Tripolitan elite. And so eventually, in 1985, the representatives of this Tripolitan elite issued a statement imploring Hafez al-Assad to send the Syrian army yet another time to try and dislodge Tawhid once and for all. And this time, the Syrian army did not spare any efforts. It mobilized as many as 7,000 soldiers to shell the Tripoli and tried entering it for 19 days. This last battle was not only long, but also extremely bloody with 600 killed in 19 days. And what explained the resilience of Tawhid was its rootedness in parts of Tripoli, its ability to mobilize not just a small core of ideologically committed fighters, but also entire local communities with whole streets and neighborhoods joining this last ditch struggle. So what are the takeaways of this local story? What can the story of Tawhid tell us more broadly about what we may call the micropolitics of armed Islamism or the ways in which Islamist actors navigate relationships with local communities, local identities, local solidarities? Well, I think that Tawhid's story tells us two main things in this respect, which I'll try and illustrate with more contemporary examples before briefly concluding. The first thing that Tawhid's story does is really to shed light on the myriad locally oriented Islamist armed groups out there. Indeed, when we think about the term armed Islamism, we do tend to spontaneously associate it with transnational armed groups such as ISIS or Al-Qaeda or with national armed groups such as the Taliban or Hamas. But what Tawhid shows is the need for a third category, a category factoring in the many armed Islamist groups which are neither national nor transnational, but local, that is literally centered on a locality, a neighborhood, a city, a village, a region. What characterizes these groups is that they are locally oriented in that they may engage to some extent with broader trends and with actors external to their locality, but ultimately they prioritize their local community. They prioritize the defense of the community, of its integrity and of its identity. These locally oriented Islamist groups have actually become very prominent in the Libyan and Syrian civil wars where I suspect they make the bulk of the armed Islamist spectrum. So I do think that it's important to recognize that and, and, and also to illustrate it with another example not drawn uh, from Tawhid. I'd like to uh, talk for just a few minutes about the Derna Mujahideen Shura Council, Majid Shura Mujahideen Derna, which was a coalition of Islamist rebels in the Libyan town of Derna, which controlled this uh, northeastern city of Libya from 2014 to 2018. I was quite interested in the group a few years ago, so I did a bit of research on it. And what struck me was how the key overarching goal of that group was explicitly local. Of course, this was an Islamist armed group, 
which cared about Sharia law and other things, but it was also a group which had vowed to protect Derna, protecting it from ISIS and from Khalifa Haftar. In fact, it's a group that uh, changed its name uh, back in 2017 into uh, the Derna Protection Force. And so I was quite interested and I, I was not able to do research in, in Derna, but I looked in quite a bit of depth into the statements put out by this group. And I was also again struck by how localized a lot of these statements were. These were statements that rarely tackled broader national or international issues. They were obsessed with all things Derna. And they sometimes consumed over pages and pages into the city's history, its identity, its architecture, its beauty. And tellingly, many of these statements ended with a sentence, may God protect Derna. I think this shows the relevance of factoring in locally oriented Islamist armed groups in our analysis of armed Islamism. They are not all national or transnational armed groups, and this local scale has to a great extent been missed. The second thing that the story does is to illuminate the various ways in which the local matters for armed Islamists. It shows very clearly the range of reasons why all Islamist armed groups, including the most transnational ones, may be interested in building up legitimacy in some local communities. This will allow them to recruit, to govern, and to hide, of course, when these groups are on the decline. So the local has often been used by these groups as a tool. But Tawhid's story also shows how the local can also affect the discourse and the behavior of armed Islamists. In fact, sometimes their violence may reflect the priorities of local communities these groups have been co-opting, more so than ideology. And I will illustrate this with the case of ISIS, ISIS in the Syrian desert. Now, ISIS is not a group that is particularly well known for having tried to co-opt local communities, but there was an exception in the Syrian desert. I don't quite know why, maybe the commander there was interested in doing that, maybe there were particular uh, strategies at play, but what is for sure is that when ISIS came to the Syrian desert in 2015, it developed extremely strong bonds with the tribal elders of the town of Asurna. The Syrian desert is this vast stretch of desert land east of Homs, and it includes two main towns, Asokna, which sees itself as the one big town of the Syrian desert, and Palmyra, which in the past decades has been considered the true capital of the Syrian desert, as locals like to call uh, um. And so, rooting itself locally in the town of Asurna was very useful for ISIS because the bonds that it tied, that, that it created with the tribal elders made it possible for ISIS to recruit 2,000 fighters in this town. But the interesting thing here is that the local was not just a tool for ISIS. It also ended up affecting it. It affected its discourse because after absorbing these 2,000 local recruits from Asurna, 
the ISIS discourse in this area became shaped by the local identity of Asurna. ISIS started calling Asurna the true capital of the Syrian desert, which again had been a title that in decades previously had been reserved for Palmyra. And it also ended up affecting the violence carried out by ISIS. Because when it sized the city of Palmyra, a couple of weeks after recruiting the 2,000 local fighters of Asurna, it carried out a massacre of hundreds of residents of Palmyra. And some analysts suggest that this massacre bore the marks of the local recruits of ISIS from Asurna, who had traditionally seen the inhabitants of Palmyra as their rivals. The strong bonds developed by ISIS with the tribal elders and communities of Asurna may also explain actually part of why the group is on the resurgence in this particular part of Syria. It's not resurgent everywhere, but it is resurgent around, in and around the town of Asurna. So these bonds may also be long lasting. So in conclusion, what I've tried to do in this talk is, of course, to mention that Islamist armed groups have often been said to be driven by religion and ideology, and also to point out that this is an important part of the story, but also to argue that it doesn't explain everything. I've tried to propose an alternative perspective, one exploring the micropolitics of armed Islamism, one assessing the role of local dynamics in the behavior and trajectory of these groups. The key finding of my research is that all Islamist armed groups are arguably affected by local contexts, including transnational groups. I think that this is interesting because not in and of itself for the local, but also because it provides new insights into the range of motivations other than ideology, which drive and shape armed Islamism. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Raziel, for a really stimulating talk. I think everyone is going to be very excited by the book after that. So I've got a question from Shalto Wright, who's one of our students in the London Recent Studies. Why did ISIS franchise with the people of Sukhna specifically and not with the people of Palmyra or most other surrounding villages? I have a couple of questions if I can abuse, or should I wait for a second round? So I defer to seniority. What's your question? <laughs> well, first of all, a fascinating talk, Raphael. There's just so much in there. And again, a lot that just isn't, as you said, is it sees transnationally and even most at the national level. These local dynamics are absolutely crucial. There's nothing too greedy. First one is I'm, I'm interested to see how do the genuinely Islamist leadership in something like Tawheed, how do they rationalize and justify the integration of people who are clearly not Islamist and presumably behave in terms of drug taking and alcohol, for example, continue to engage? Do they see it as the greater end? Is it justified in that sense? The other question I'd like to ask is, as you know, I've studied in the past with the business insurgency in Algeria. And again, very clearly local dynamics developed over time there. And there were two particular dimensions that developed, um, one of which seems to be operating here, but one not so much. One is the element of turf war 
between other rival groups and other rival, which is clearly what seems to be happening in Palmyra and in the desert in Syria. The other one that operated a lot in Algeria was the, the economic dimension in terms of racketeering and ex local extortion, control over local political economy uh, through sort of almost mafiosa-style behavior. Is, is that something that you see in any of these cases? Because that was definitely the case of what developed locally in regions in Algeria. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great uh, set of questions to start with. Thank you very much. So the question as to why did ISIS ally with Sokhna specifically and not Palmyra? It's a great question. And I think it goes to the core of what ISIS has been very good at uh, in the past decade. It is a group that thinks strategically about the local and sort of notices communities which have grievances. And so as the town, the, the, the residents of the Sokhna, as I mentioned, uh, are residents who feel aggrieved uh, because they've seen their rivals of Palmyra becoming essentially inhabitants of the, of the capital of the Syrian desert. The capital of the Syrian desert is an actual name that the Syrian regime gave, the Ba'ath Party gave to uh, the city of Palmyra. So the, the Ba'ath regime having chosen uh, Palmyra as uh, its capital of the Syrian desert, uh, the residents of the Sotna uh, felt uh, aggrieved and marginalized and, and in fact also put down. And so uh, I, think, I think it's part of why ISIS uh, tried to build uh, bonds in that city because this was a city with potential, with grievances, uh, where people could be mobilized against others. It, it partially links uh, in you ask Michael about uh, why, uh, rather how Tawhid justified the absorption of non-Islamists into the, into the group. It's a very good question, and maybe I should have mentioned that in the talk. Tawhid actually placed hopes that these non-Islamists would become uh, uh, strongly committed Islamists over time. And it was not just a, a matter of rhetoric. Tawhid invested quite considerable resources uh, for the time back then into the three neighborhoods uh, where non-Islamists were, were many. It uh, built new mosques, it uh, set up indoctrination camps, and having talked to instructors from these indoctrination camps and with fighters who went through the camps on the other side, of course, of, of the camp as sort of attendees or, or students, it was clear from both perspectives that uh, this did not really work out. It didn't really produce any results. There were stories of, of individuals who did become uh, committed afterwards, but it was really the exception rather than the rule. And so here, the bottom line is that I think Tawhid was perhaps a bit naive and in its approach really actually tried to build up the ideological commitment of these non-Islamists. It just ended up failing. Also remember, we're talking about a three-year period. This is not a massively long mm -hmm. amount of time. Tawhid was in control of Tripoli for three years only, 1982, 1985. So if it had stayed longer in charge of the city, maybe there would have been more cases of, of actual conversions, ideological conversions to a, a, a strong breed of you know, Islamism. The question you ask on racketeering, extortion, and mafioso behavior, actually the parallels with Algeria in the 1990s are, are really fascinating. In the case of Tawhid, this dynamic went very far indeed. 
because once the group needed resources to govern the city, it was ready to uh, strike a pact with, with the devil, uh, as it were, for at least for Islamic standards. And so it integrated into the group an actual uh, criminal gang headed by a Christian who supposedly converted to uh, Sunni Islam and then became an Islamist, but again, that was, that was not really a case of sincere conversion uh, to Islamism. What his absorption into Tawhid essentially showed the group's willingness to include anyone who would bring in revenues so that the group was able to continue uh, operating and governing the city of Tripoli. It's interestingly enough, this neighborhood gang added by this a Christian mafioso, Mr. Kushari, I have a whole section uh, on, on him and on uh, his faction in the book. It ended up engaging in alcohol smuggling. And people say that the target leaders knew, but that this was such a profitable business that they just let it happen. Uh, so it shows again the extent to which these local dynamics and sometimes simply the, the need for resources as you are governing and you need boots on the ground, you need manpower, you need to provide services, you need to engage in patronage, and for all of this, you need resources wherever they come from. Great. Thanks, Raphael. Really enjoyed this back and forth. I'm going to ask you some questions, if I may. So, I had some questions about the framing, which is around ideology. Hmm. So, um, you know, the study is very well motivated by pushing back against explanations that are simply rooted in ideology. But let me, in turn, like gently push back and, and kind of suggest that, in many ways, you know, the modal approach for understanding political Islam, whether that's armed or unarmed, is precisely to write out ideology from a lot of the accounts. So I'm thinking here of Savis Mahin's work, for example, from the early 2000s, where she talks about Islamism as being an idiom of politics, in which people the universe, but it's ultimately about politics. And I'm thinking here also. Thomas Heckhammer came and spoke here recently, where he, his kind of argument is, is the dominant approach in studying jihadis is that religion and ideology is like a wrapper, um, but actually at the core of it, there's actually politics and economics, which is obviously you know, themes that come out very strongly in, in your research. What I was kind of curious to hear about though, was about the ideology of Tawhid at the beginning of the movement, because I think you're absolutely right that true ideologues are very rare in any given population. And so necessarily you have to recruit beyond true ideologues to be able to sustain large force or movement. But surely the kind of the core cadre that the early risers, if you will, they presumably were more motivated by ideology. And I, and I was kind of curious to hear what distinguished Tawhid from kind of analog comparable movements. If we think about political Islam as a spectrum, where did they kind of sit on that uh, spectrum and who were they principally inspired by in their kind of initial nascent stage? I also wanted to kind of push you as well to think about this, this framing about local politics. Presumably, you know, you, you want to introduce this kind of radical groups. Presumably, this is in large part a function of the development of the organization at the time. That is to say that all organizations start local, necessarily so, and some become national and some become transnational. And so what I was kind of curious to hear you think, your thoughts on was that counterfactually, obviously, if, if the Syrian regime hadn't come crush the movement in 1985, could we imagine a version of Al-Tawhid that was national or transnational? And how then would that have changed these kinds of local dynamics or not, uh, if that's the case? Thanks. You, you are getting so many good questions and, and how to answer. The first question you asked was about the framing of my talk and, and perhaps also of the book around 
ideology and then kind of pushing it back against against me pushing it back against <laughs> and so on and so forth well, first of all let me start by specifying that, that the book is slightly more sophisticated than the talk uh, the talk is 30 minutes after all and uh, i wanted to make uh, this argument for a reason I, I get into in a second but the book does explain the ways in which ideology actually matter in Tawhid. I have this argument in the book that ideology actually mattered quite a bit in Tawhid. I think I also alluded to that in, in the talk, but especially because there were a handful of extremely committed Islamists in Tawhid who organized as a faction and tried to shape movement behavior, tried to lobby the leader of the group and, and the whole leadership to take ideologically inspired decisions. So ideology did matter, but it's true that in this talk, I push a little bit back against this uh, tendency on the part of some scholars to overemphasize ideology. And you're absolutely right to mention the work of Salwa uh, Ismail, a colleague at SOAS, who's written a brilliant article uh, precisely on this uh, back in the late 1990s. But, but the truth, but the, the field that we operate in is that it's a divided field. There are people who are pushing back against ideology only explanations. There are also people who are engaging with these ideology only explanations. And these people in other fields, I'm thinking the field of civil wars, or the field of terrorism studies, especially, are sometimes dominant in the scholarly conversation. Hence, my attempt to push back against this perspective, which I think is dominant in other fields outside of our own area studies. You asked a really good question on the first movers, the first movers of Tawhid. Who were they? Were they Islamists? Yes, of course, they were Islamists. But then which kind of Islamists? There were two kinds of Islamists which uh, formed Tawhid. The first one was a breed we're familiar with, the Kodbists. We were inspired by, say, Kotob, the radical fringe of the Muslim Brotherhood, and especially by uh, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood's radical ideologue, Saida Hawla. But there was an, another breed of uh, Islamists which also started Tawhid. And in many ways, they ended up diverging towards the end of the movement. And these were Khomeinists, uh, people who were Sunni Islamists, but were inspired by the Iranian revolution. Uh, this is not an exception. We know that, of course, there are other groups that are Sunni Islamists and ended up being inspired by the Iranian Revolution, Palestinian Islam and Jihad being uh, one of them. And so these were the two types of uh, Islamists which coexisted at the beginning of the life of Tawhid. And then your third question, or rather point, was that all groups start local. And so inevitably, all politics is local for groups that are in their beginnings. Tawhid had a three years period of life can be considered as short, but in the middle of a, a civil war, this is not too short either. The group, interestingly, started local, that's true, but never developed broader ambitions. This was not a group, often groups start local, but with broader ambitions, with broader aims, like taking over a Beirut and the Lebanese government, or, or, or starting revolutions across the world, or, or across the uh, toppling the Syrian regime and so on and so forth. That wasn't the case with Tawhid. This was a group that mostly cared about Tripoli and wanted to take Tripoli over government. Uh, that's what the group's ambition was. 
And as I tried to suggest in the talk, I, I don't think that these locally oriented movements uh, are necessarily an exception or that they are uh, only characteristic of the early life of movements. There are many movements that uh, start local and remain local because they are locally oriented. They are formed with the explicit goal of protecting a community, protecting a village, a neighborhood, a mountain sometimes, and you have many such groups which never really try to go broader than uh, their locality. Harakat Nureddin Zinki is one of them in northern Syria, centered on one village, Captain Al Jabal. It's a group that still exists today, it's been 10 years, and it never developed uh, into a national group because it never intended to develop into a national group. What motivated it was the protection of its uh, village and of its group of villages around it. Uh, but there are many other examples that I'm happy to get into. Thanks, Rafael. Pretty. Thanks very much for a great talk. I just had two questions. And the first one relates a little bit to the points that Neil was mentioning. I'm, I'm wondering about the early stage of this group. Did they have a sort of ideological moderation or pivot when they decided, you know, essentially Tripoli itself? Or was that always the ambition right from the start? So just sort of tracing the, I guess, the leadership of it and, and looking at whether or not the more Salafi elements of it sort of great, gained greater or lesser influence as the organization developed. The second thing that I'm wondering about is also related to the sort of early onset of this group. I wonder how they competed with other groups in the conflict who were also competing for local parts of my, you know, local influence. Was it, was this just a matter of they had more committed fighters and they were able to possess revenue streams like the port, which they made taxes off of, or, or how did they really outcompete those other groups that were also struggling for parts of mind? I'm conscious that we've run out of time, but let me just pose you one more question, in this case from an anonymous attendee, who thanks you for an extremely interesting presentation. Their question is, we were mainly talking about the reasons why Tawhid uh, started recruiting non-Islamists, but according to you, Raphael, why was this strategy so effective? I mean, looking at the other side of the fence, why did non-Islamist actors feel so attracted to it and subsequently decide to join? So why were they attracted to the movement and decided to do what is presumably quite a high-risk strategy and, and decide to join? Thank you. Perhaps let me take the, the last question first. Why did non-Islamists join Tawhid? I mentioned in the talk the two mechanisms through which Tawhid recruited these non-Islamists. One of them was enlisting the support of neighborhood strongmen. So these strongmen who have massive local following uh, on the some neighborhood. So what motivated these fighters to join Tawhid then was the fact that their neighborhood strongmen had joined Tawhid and out of a, a mix of a sense of loyalty and neighborhood solidarity, a lot of them ended up joining Tawhid. It's actually quite striking when you ask uh, people, sure, like 40 years later, but nonetheless, it's interesting, why did you join Tawhid? Uh, you're from this neighborhood, you're not an Islamist, why? And so many times I heard the answer, because Khalil Akkari had joined the group, but quite simply. It's difficult to, uh, I mean, one cannot, 
underestimate the extent to which these local solidarities, these local identities, the neighborhood scale really mattered in the case of Dublin. And I think the neighborhood strong and joint was really a key factor for the youth in this one neighborhood, especially Barbatic Bain. In the case of the other neighborhoods, I mentioned that Tawhid was willing to offer them the conduit for their support. Uh, and so I think that was a key factor. Uh, the group paid sometimes its recruits. It was not always a systematic approach, and it varied depending on, on the group's resources and depending on on essentially time. It ended up paying fighters at some point in 1983, more so than before and after. Uh, so I suspect that pay was also part of the story. And as I also suggested in my response to uh, Michael's uh, question on extortion, uh, quite a few of these fighters joined because they wanted to make money out of organized crime and Tawhid was the dominant actor in Tripoli and therefore by joining the dominant actor in Tripoli they were able to continue engaging in smuggling, engaging in, in alcohol trafficking, cigarette trafficking, uh, uh, you name it. Sometimes even trafficking with Syrian intelligence shows the extent to which, in this respect, ideology was not necessarily the, the most important factor. And I think that leads me uh, to the question you asked about the early stages of the group. What was the ambition from the start, you asked? It's important to remember that Tawhid was formed in the summer 1982. The summer 1982 is important for two reasons. First, it's a few months after the Hama massacre. Hama is not too far from Tripoli. And back then, in February 1982, the Syrian regime had crushed the uh, Israelis rebels in Hama, in, in a bloodshed. And there were talks back then in Tripoli that the Syrian regime would move into Tripoli and uh, operate a similar, uh, very, very bloody crackdown on the entire city, just shedding the entire city. And so that mattered, uh, protecting Tripoli from the threat of uh, a Syrian Hamas-style massacre. Of course, the summer of 1982 is especially linked to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in June 1982, which saw the Israeli army come up to 20 miles from uh, Tripoli, in the city of Biblos. And so quite a few uh, people back in, back in the days in, in, in the summer 1982 in, in Tripoli thought that Israel is also going to come and invade uh, Tripoli, mostly because it has two important Palestinian refugee camps in which the PLO was extremely strong. Uh, Israel did not end up invading the north of Lebanon, is that, that far north, and Syria did not end up uh, carrying out a Hamas-style massacre in Tripoli, at least not in 1982. But protecting Tripoli from these two threats was really what brought the two different breeds of Islamists that I mentioned before together and govern together in, in this group. You asked another question on what allowed Tawhid essentially to outcompete its rivals. What made Tawhid uh, able to uh, become such a strong militant citizens group in Tripoli. Well, Tripoli did not really have a strong militant citizens group back then. Tripoli actually had quite a few uh, Marxist armed groups, but Islamist armed groups were very few. The Lebanese Muslim Brotherhood, which is strong in Tripoli, that is a national group, had a militia called Al Mujahid, the Holy Warriors, 
this was really a militia that uh, barely got involved in the Lebanese Civil War. They only lost 20 or 30 uh, people in battles in 1976. And so by 1982, they were not very strong. They were not a serious competitor to Tafriyad. Another group was Jundonwa, Soldiers of God. And that group ended up being absorbed by Tafriyad because Tafriyad had become quite rapidly such a strong with resources and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think that, that Tafriyad ended up emerging in, in a local environment in, in Tripoli, which was marked by a certain vacuum in the armed Islamist spectrum. The spectrum was quite busy, as it were, uh, when it came to the leftist armed groups, but the spectrum of armed Islamism in Tripoli back then was very, very small indeed. And, and this is something I tried to allude at when I mentioned that in Tripoli, the pool of committed militant Islamists was very, very uh, small. Question. That's great. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, so let me then thank Raphael for a really great talk and for suffering our questions with great patience and giving such excellent answers. If you were all here, we would try to sell uh, Raphael's book C. Unfortunately, uh, most of you are online. For those of you who haven't been able to ask a question of Raphael, I'm sure he would be delighted to have some back and forth over email. And I really encourage you uh, to take a look at his book uh, and to purchase it. Thank you all very much. And can I just end by thanking all of you who attending uh, from sometimes far away, and, and just to say that far from having suffered, I really, really, really enjoyed uh, both the talk, but also the Q and A, and, and it was really, really nice. Uh, so thanks to all of the attendees. Yes, our talk next week is by Joseph Sassoon from Georgetown University, who's written a book basically on his own family, the Sassoon family, merchants coming here. He's coming to Oxford to speak in Britain, and he'll be speaking here at five o'clock next Friday. That's Joseph Sassoon, and he will have copies of his book on that topic. But anyway, thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to you joining us again soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.